The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. This evening, we'll be taking a look at Psalm 3. Dr. Rogers has been preaching a series on God-centered prayer. I wanted to follow his lead and hit upon uh, the theme of prayer. So this evening, we're going to be looking at Psalm 3. Now, you may have heard that Westminster is going to be hosting a conference Uh, on domestic abuse. We call it the Domestic Abuse Seminar in late September. And while Psalm 3 does not speak directly to the issue of domestic abuse, not not at least how we normally conceive of it, Psalm 3 does help us to understand the experience of a person who is living under attack at home. The title of the psalm is a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Now, my outline is simple. It follows the text, and it asks three questions of the psalm, and each question breaks naturally with each verse in the psalm. And we know the verses because they're marked by the Hebrew word salah. So these are the three questions that I'm going to ask as we walk through the psalm. The first is, What is David's situation? The second is, who is the Lord, even in the midst of David's situation? And the third is, how does David respond? In other words, as David remembers the Lord, how is he empowered to respond while living under attack at home? So let me read God's holy word. Psalm 3, starting at verse 1. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I laid down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. So first, let's look at David's situation. What is his situation? Verse 1 and 2, he says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many, not a few. Many are rising up against me. And they're all saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him. David is overwhelmed by his foes. The, The number of them and their determination to defeat him. Their confidence 
that God has abandoned him. Now, it would be easy to assume that David's enemies were Israel's enemies, idolaters, foreigners, strangers, people like the Ammonites, the Philistines, unclean, pagans. But we have to remember the title of the psalm is a psalm of David when he fled from who? His son, Absalom. His enemies are not strangers. They're family and friends. In other words, David is living under attack at home. Now let me explain a little bit of the background of David's situation. David was the youngest son of Jesse, and nobody, not his father or any of his older brothers, considered the possibility that God would pick David to be king. But he does. And his brothers burn with jealousy. And later, when King Saul is after David, there's no mention of any of his brothers coming to his aid. Now, David grows up, and he has 19 sons, at least 19 sons that live past infancy. And no, that wasn't with one woman that was extremely exhausted from raising 19 children by herself, because David disobeyed God. And he did what God warned Israelite kings never to do. He had many wives and concubines. And that caused no small rivalry between his sons, especially those who were born from different mothers. And so David bears primary primary responsibility for his family's dysfunction because he he disobeyed God by marrying multiple wives. David may have been a great warrior king and poet, but he was a terrible husband and not a very good dad at times. And his dysfunction, the family dysfunction, becomes so severe. Let me give you just an example. His oldest son, Amnon, developed a sexual obsession toward his half-sister, Tamar, and he rapes her. And afterwards, he refuses to take responsibility and marry her and provide for her, and there's no mention in the text, that David does anything to intervene to discipline his son. And so Tamar is forced to return to her full brother's house, Absalom, where she lives as a desolate woman. And in anger to the injustice done to his sister, Absalom takes measures into his own hands, and he plans his revenge carefully. He lures Amnon to a feast at his home, where he tells his servants to rise and kill him. And then he flees for his life. Now, some of you are thinking, wow, I thought my family was dysfunctional. And if God can work in David's family, maybe God won't give up so quickly on mine. And I think that's a good thought. No level of family dysfunction is beyond the redemptive power of our God. Now, Absalom, after he flees, it takes several years for David's anger to subside, and he permits Absalom to return to Jerusalem, but forbids him to enter his presence or talk with him. The rift between father and son grows. After two years, Absalom is so distressed, the rift is so deep, Absalom takes his life into his own hands and says, if I go into my father's presence and he kills me, then he kills me but I need to be restored to my dad. And David embraces Absalom, 
and seemingly forgives him, and you think, okay, all is well, right? Wrong. In his old age, David's sons are beginning to vie for the throne. And Absalom develops a plan to win over the hearts of the people. He grooms the citizens of Jerusalem to anticipate him as king. He campaigns in the city gates. And once he has confidence that the people are with him, he calls all of his followers to the city of Hebron where they plan a coup. David discovers Absalom's conspiracy And rather than allow Jerusalem to be attacked and destroyed, he withdraws with his closest advisors, his family, his loyal followers, and he flees Jerusalem and crosses over the Jordan River, which allows Absalom the opportunity to walk into Jerusalem and to capture it, take control of the city without a single death. Absalom brashly sets up an open-air tent on the roof and sleeps with his father's ten concubines. You can't make this stuff up. As David flees Jerusalem, a man named Shimei from the house of Saul yells curses at David. He says, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul. And then he begins to throw rocks and dirt at David. This is David's situation He likely writes this psalm later that night in his tent while he's on the run from Absalom after he's crossed the Jordan River. David's life's a mess. It's inappropriate to call David an innocent sufferer. Much, but not all, of his family dysfunction was a result of him disobeying God and creating this atmosphere primed for family feuds. But yet, in many other ways, David is innocent. Contrary to Shimei's condemning remarks, David was not to blame for King Saul's downfall or a bloody civil war. David had been a very patient man in waiting for the throne, a courageous soldier, a wise king, a faithful friend to Jonathan, and as we know, a talented poet and an earnest worshiper of God. But that doesn't erase the fact that he was a terrible husband and father at times. How does this apply? When you see someone living under attack, like we see David, whether it's in your family or this church or in your neighborhood or at work, don't jump to conclusions. See, many people tend to make two equal but opposite errors. On the one hand, they believe that the person living under attack must somehow have earned this, that they deserve it somehow, and they're finally getting their just desserts. On the other hand, they might believe the person's completely innocent, without fault, whatsoever, especially if we really like the person, we're tempted to believe that. Jumping to conclusions is just very easy and tempting to do. It feels good to vent about our opinions, even if they're ignorant ones. And even when we jump to conclusions with the best of intentions, it seems helpful but I've rarely found it to be truly helpful. It does more damage. One of the many things that I love about the Bible is that it describes life accurately in all of its complicated mess, and we don't need to apologize for that. We can thank God. Too many of us 
talk about the biblical heroes in ways that minimize their failures. Because quite frankly, we've placed our hope in the wrong place. The Bible's not written to teach you how to be like David all the time. It's written so that you may see that even the best men, men like David, needed God's grace and forgiveness. And to show you how in the midst of your failure, even after many, many successes, that God is a God who answers our desperate calls for mercy and justice in the midst of our messiness. And so we need to resist the false comfort that comes from jumping to one-size-fits-all conclusions. And we need to do the careful work of listening and understanding people's stories and how things came about as they are. And to patiently guide them to the God who in the midst of their mess offers truth, offers grace and mercy and compassion. Another application is if you're in the midst of living under attack, Don't think you're alone. See, we tend to think that we can predict who's going to attack us, who's going to come after us. It's got to be strangers, enemies, people from the other side of the political aisle. But it's not so with David here in Psalm 3. It wasn't so with Joseph or Moses or Jesus. Sometimes the worst attacks come from insiders. And some of you in this church know exactly what I mean. Your biggest threat comes from inside your home not outside. Family members who gossip and slander, who wound and neglect or abuse. And that kind of pain is unique. And if you've been injured by insider attacks, the Bible speaks with tenderness and compassion to your situation. The Bible gives voice to your story. This psalm is here to remind you you're not invisible. God sees. You may feel like you're alone, but you are not. Many have walked that path before you. Some have been through what you are going through. And this psalm gives you a voice and shows you how you can cry out to God in the midst of your very difficult situation. So that's the situation that David is in. But who is the Lord in the midst of the situation? Look at verse 3 and 4. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. But you, O Lord. I think those words are amazing. We can gloss right over them. But let's stop and recognize what David is doing in the midst of the mess. He's calling out to the Lord. How many of us don't even get that far? We only see our trouble. We only see our pain. And in the midst of our pain, the Lord drops out of the equation. I don't know about you. When I'm in extreme physical pain, I hate to admit it, but the last thing I'm thinking about oftentimes is the Lord and prayer. Because I'm so focused on the pain, I can't see beyond it. But here, David, in the midst of his pain, he's focusing on the Lord. And he's calling out to the Lord. And what does he remember of his God? 
He says, God, you are a shield about me. A shield protects us from injury. And notice how he describes the shield. It's unique. It's not like Captain America's shield. It's not made of vibranium, small and round. It's not even like a a, a Roman shield that's all in front of me from ankles to neck. No, this is a shield about me. God is protecting me on every side, whether I'm attacked as expected from the front or, or whether I'm stabbed in the back in an unexpected attack. David knows <clears throat> his life is so messy, the situation is so complicated, he cannot protect himself. Certainly not in this situation. And he's given up on the idea that he can ensure his own security. He can be aware, he can be cautious, he can ponder and he can plan, but he cannot keep more bad things from happening. And so he turns to God and he says, God, you are my shield. God is the only one that can protect him. He's a shield about him. What would it be for you to consider God as the best shield that you have? How would your reactions change if you really believe God had your back? That he's a shield. Maybe you wouldn't fight like you do with others. So concerned about getting the upper hand, so afraid of losing. Maybe you wouldn't be so defensive. Maybe you wouldn't be so offensive and aggressive. Because you would recognize, the Lord is my protector. He is the one that vindicates me. He is the one that is going to set things straight. But not only does David remember he's a shield, that God is a shield, he says, God, you are my glory, and the lifter of my head. Glory is not a term modern man uses much. We use terms more like honor, splendor, or pride. When a king talked about his glory, what would you expect him to talk about? He would talk about his victories in battle, maybe. His wealth in gold. Maybe the size of his army or the extent of his kingdom. Those are the things that enabled a king to walk with his head held high. Success, status, wealth, offspring. That was a king's glory. But here, King David says, God, you are my glory and the lifter of my head. He's not talking about two different things. He's saying the same thing in a poetic way twice. These things are linked. They're not separate. For example, if I say, Marty is my wife and my lifelong partner, she's my lifelong partner because she's my wife. And she's my wife because she's my lifelong partner. In the same way, God is the lifter of my head because he's my glory. Because he's my glory, he's the lifter of my head. That's what David is saying. In other words, David is saying, it isn't my victories in battle that enable me to walk with my head held high. It isn't my building projects or my wealth or my numerous children that enable me to walk with my head held high. That's not my glory. But at the same time, he's saying, I'm not going to hang my head low because of my failures. 
because of my dysfunctional kids and family. No, David says, I lift my head high. I hold my head high. Because God is my glory. It's not what I have done and what I have accomplished, but it is who God is and what God has accomplished for me. He is my glory. And he doesn't look to himself. Now, how could David put such hope in God? Where did David acquire confidence that God would share his glory and allow David to delight in God's glory? And David shows us why he puts such hope in God in verse 4. He says, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. David cries out to God, and God answers how? In flashes of lightning, in sounds of thunder, in a voice from heaven? No. David clarifies, God answered from his holy hill. Well, what does that mean? I believe David is referring to Mount Zion, that holy hill where God met Abraham at his greatest moment of desperation and need and provided a solution in the most unexpected way from the thicket, a substitute that would enable him to save his son. David is referring to that same holy hill where the Ark of the Covenant rested, God's treasure box, where his keepsakes for his people were hid. Moses' staff, the tablets, the jar of manna, each reminded David of God's provision in the midst of the wilderness and his power to deliver from enemies, even when you're pushed up against the sea. See, that holy hill is where the temple would eventually sit that David hadn't yet built. The one he said, God, I want to build you a more permanent home, a place for you to dwell. But God said, no, I don't want you to build me a house. Let me build you a house. And I'm going to establish your line and your family. See, when David says, God answered me from his holy hill, I doubt it means that God showed up miraculously and spoke directly to David. Otherwise, David would have said that. More likely, it meant that God was speaking through the things he had already done on that holy hill. And David just needed to remember. How do I mean? Well, when we're under attack, the first question is, Lord, where are you? And when David's under attack, he's wondering, where is the Lord? And David discovers God is right where he promised to be on his holy hill, right where he's always been. God has not left David. He abides on his holy hill with his people. And that answer is sufficient for David in the midst of his terrible situation when he's under attack at home. But it makes, but it, that answer is made all the more clear for us. See, David only saw the ark that reminded him that God carries his people through difficult times through the wilderness, but we see the cross that reminds us that God provides a shield for us that protects us eternally from the attacks of Satan. And especially when everything falls apart, we can look at a cross and see that when all hope was lost, God was actually doing his best work. 
And so David sees on his holy hill how God is constantly turning things on his head, whether it's with Abraham or with the Israelites in the wilderness and the Ark of the Covenant or for us, whether it's Jesus Christ. See, we see God turn the worst on its head when he provides his own son to die as a substitute in our place so that we can be delivered from our sin. And so that we can have hope that there is a God who is a God of justice and that all sin will be dealt with in the light, but at the same time he's a God of mercy. And that all sin, no matter how defiling, can be forgiven and cleansed. See, God is right where he promises to be. On his holy hill, turning the worst on its head, making all things beautiful in their time. So David has the answer he needs, even in the midst of a horrible situation with a rebellious son and a lost city. He, he realizes somehow God can redeem. When everything else fails, the Lord is your present shield. He's your glory. He enables you to walk with your head held high. Whether you have friends gossiping about you at work, maybe children who mock your faith even though you invested 18 years into teaching them the ways of the Lord, or you have a spouse that berates you or neglects you. See, the Lord is right where he always promises to be. Right there with you, in the midst of the mess, working his redemptive plan. And we need to wait upon him to see what he is going to do. So what does David choose choose to do and how does he choose to respond as he remembers the Lord notice verse 5 and 6 he says I laid down and went to sleep (laughs) isn't that great I woke again for the Lord sustained me I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around as David remembers God he responds by preaching to himself not listening to himself Notice verse 6, he says, I will not be afraid, though many thousands of people have set themselves around me. See, he's preaching God's promises to himself. He's saying, I'm not going to be afraid because God is with me. He is my protector. He is my vindicator. Sometimes we need to just stop listening to ourselves, to our fears, to our insecurities. We need to silence the tape that plays in the back of our mind. And preach to ourselves the promises of God and the presence of God. We need to ruminate less on our problems and meditate more on God's promises and his word, despite our messy situation. And as a result, it enables us to surrender, to maybe do the best thing we can do, which is just go to bed. And how do you go to bed? You know, my kids, they sleep well. They don't worry at all. I'm the one up worrying. Why don't they worry? Because they know dad's got it covered. They're not worried about the bills. They're not worried about anything. David knows the rest of a child because he sees God as his loving father. He's just going to take care of it. Guilt doesn't keep him awake at night, though he's a guilty man. Because he's also forgiven and reconciled and sees that God has forgiven him. 
Fear doesn't keep him awake at night, though he's in danger because there's nothing he can do anyway. And so he waits for God to act. And he goes to bed. And notice he says he wakes up because the Lord sustains me. His dependence on the Lord is almost comical. He says, I woke up. God sustained me. I'm still here. I guess he still has purposes for me. I guess he still wants me around as king. It's not my time. And then he prays. And this, this is amazing. Notice how he prays in verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the cheek. Break their teeth. Break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be on your people. David asked God to strike his enemies, to curse his enemies, and then he asked God to bless his people. That's a tricky prayer. There's a problem. Because he's praying about the same people. (laughs) His enemies are his people his family, his friends. And notice what he doesn't pray, as he has in other psalms. He doesn't say, kill my enemies. But he does say, strike them on the cheek. Break their teeth. And if you are someone who is suffering under attack, this prayer gives you courage to pray boldly for the person you, you love. See, David is not praying, kill him, get back at him. I think what David's praying is stop him and do whatever it takes. See, God, he has a way of doing whatever it takes to get to the heart. He's a masterful fighter and wrestler. And he knows where to press and put pressure to help someone to yield. He's a master surgeon. He knows just how deeply to cut. And so David is praying, God, this is my son. These are my friends. These are my people. Do whatever it takes to change their heart so that they can be blessed Because he's praying blessings on the people. How do you pray both at the same time for the same people? This is a courageous prayer. He's praying angrily for justice and at the same time longing deeply for mercy. So I encourage you as an application. If you are in a situation or you know of situations where people are living under attack, where they are victims, pray with honest, hopeful anger. Anger is not a bad thing. Anger is a mark of love. Chances are the people you're angry with the most are people you love most. And the reason why you're so angry is because you see what is destroying them or you or the relationship. It's not that you hate your son, it's that you hate the addict in your son. And you hate it so much because you love your son. That is God's love for his people. And that is how David prays. And that is how I encourage you to pray.
if you were living under attack at home, saying, God, do whatever it takes to get to their heart so that they can be blessed and we can be your people. Salvation belongs to you, O God. But one last warning, and this we see that David just surrenders the situation to God. Unfortunately, there's no pretty bow at the end of this one if you know the the story and how it ends up. And I don't want to stand up here and say, well, if you pray and ask God, everything will just turn out all right this side of heaven. That's not what happens. Absalom dies. And if you've lived under attack, contrary to other people's well-meaning but ultimately misled promises that it will work out soon, know that the Bible speaks soberly and compassionately about the lingering tragedies this side of glory. The Bible reminds us that deliverance isn't always painted in pastels and isn't always tied up nicely in a bow. Sometimes it's painted with crimson and it's marked with a cross and with death. But our hope is, even then, God can bring new life. God, we thank you that you give us your holy word like Psalm 3 that gives us much instruction for how to live under attack, how to trust you when we're under attack, how to pray to you when we're under attack, how to, how to call upon you, what to believe about you. God, we pray for anyone in this church anyone in this community that's living under attack, that you would prove yourself to be a shield about them, that you would be the glory, their glory, and the lifter of their head, that their hope wouldn't be in what they have done or can do or how they can justify themselves, whether they are victim or perpetrator, but their, their glory and their hope would be in who you are and what you can do, that you can always turn things on their head and redeem. We pray that you would in glorious, unexpected ways. And we wait for you to do that. And as we wait and trust in you, help us to surrender so we can sleep peacefully and wake up knowing that you are sustaining us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.